Have you ever wondered how your sales performance compares against your competitors and peers? The B2B Sales Benchmark Report provides the definitive guide to what success looks like in 2021. See how you compare in terms of win rate, sales cycle, average deal value, relationships, and engagement. You can see the results and get the full report at ebster.com forward slash B2B dash sales dash benchmarks. Whenever I'm approaching an executive team about a particular initiative, I follow three basic tenets. So one is I'll talk about there's a high degree of dependence on institutional knowledge to achieve an outcome. So that is ripe for standardization, uh, knowledge transfer. This is Sales Ops Demystified, the number one most downloaded podcast in sales operations. We invite the brightest minds in sales ops onto the show to deconstruct the what, why, and how behind rep productivity, forecasting, metrics, and all things revenue. This podcast is brought to you by EBSA, a revenue intelligence platform used to identify risk in the pipeline and score customer engagement and is sponsored by the Global Sales Operations Association and the UK Revenue Operations Network. Hello and welcome to another very special episode of the Sales Ops Demystified podcast. Today, we're joined by Martin Levesque, who has extensive sales ops experience and his latest role was a sales ops director at a company called Fair Warning. Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Let's kick things off and go right back pre-sales ops. What were you doing and why did you make that jump into the world of sales ops? Yeah, I used to, um, before I started listening to this show, I used to think that my path was pretty unconventional. Uh, but I've learned since that a lot of people take uh, varying kinds of uh, initial roles and end up here. Um, I wouldn't say end up, I say reach to become here. I think it's a good spot to be. Uh, so for me, it was, I started in um, just studying systems, uh, workflow automation, document management. Uh, I worked in implementation of automation tools for business processes. Um, and I did that for a variety of industries. And, um, and then eventually became to a point where I started leading uh, a team of folks and building a consultancy inside of, inside of a company called DocuPhase, iDatix at the time, and just training and teaching people how to approach problem solving, discovery, how to approach root cause analysis, how to know when you're looking at an exception versus a rule, and building solutions that both uh, organizations uh, felt were optimal for uh, both, I say, loyalty and longevity, uh, you know, for the partnership. And um, that led to eventually running operations for that company. And it was at that point that I got the vantage point needed to look into sales 
lead generation, customer success, retention, partner relationships, all the different revenue streams and levers that I hadn't been exposed to in implementation of this, these tools. And that kind of was the spark, I guess you could say, because as I became more interested and started delving into this world, that's, that's where it all started. I got hooked on growth. Makes total sense. So just, just to clarify the point about the internal consulting department, this was your, your only clients were other departments in the organization, I guess. No. So the internal consulting department was basically... So imagine uh, a bunch of techs running around with uh, the skill set to implement technology, but not have the skill set to uh, consult with a client. A client meaning external uh, clients. So, you know, we did everything uh, from uh, industrial to healthcare to banks. And, you know, you know, so you're basically, you're stepping into an executive meeting uh, with a problem to solve. How do, you, how do you extract what you need to implement the solution? Uh, so we had great techs and not so much on the, on the consulting and business analysis and process analysis side. And so I brought those two worlds together and that's how we developed the consultancy. Got it. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but could you paint the picture of a sales loss function being like a consulting department for the sales team? Absolutely. So it, it's the consulting team for all departments because of, because of its um, process lens. It's looking across the company versus in a vertical. It's the only, it's the only function I see that has um, the insight to be able to tie in a particular decision or a discussion that's being made in a vertical and be able to relay how that'll impact downstream and vice versa. You know, so whether you have a downstream initiative that's happening in implementation or in support that will impact something uh, in the sales side. Uh, so being that kind of sounding board and lens that looks across the process, hugely valuable. So you end up consulting and advising on, on all those sides, even from a financial pas- aspect and planning aspect too. Got it. Now we're going to fast forward a few years up to, to fair warning. When you joined the business, were you set like a goal or a, um, a, a remit? Like were, were there an overarching theme to the work that you were doing when you joined? Um, I think that, uh, it, it, well, first of all, let me start by saying that uh, at the time, Mainsail Partners, which was the um, private equity group that um, was running Mainsail or you know working with Mainsail at the time, um, it was it was their desire that Fair Warning uh, install a sales ops professional, um, and and the directive was only to build uh, to build the team that would support scale, right? So I think we came in somewhere around 18 million. And the exit was somewhere around 30 plus. Um, and in that short span, about a year and a half or so, uh, a lot of work was in evaluating the systems and processes in place to help standardize a lot of the institutional knowledge that was there from the founder. Um, you know, it's the only step that expertise could stand on in order to scale the business. So if we could step on standardization, we would be good. So go out and figure out uh, what is it that's out there that can be grouped together and standardized in such a way that, in some in some respects, automated too, so that we don't have to run up against uh, the constant discussions that we have all through.
throughout the sales cycle in order to get something done. So that was probably number one mission. Got it. And it, yeah, the the private equity team wanting to bring on a sales ops person makes total sense uh, to streamline, cut any fat, but also drive the growth they need for their investment multiples, etc. Especially right in that right in that gap there, you know, between ten and twenty five million. That's a critical stepping stone. Got it. Here's a tricky one, maybe. Um, the the fair warning uh, mission statement on the site is, or for the business, is we strive to protect health, wealth, and personal information for everyone on earth. Awesome statement. How do you see the sales ops function supporting that mission? It's indirect, right? You can't draw a straight line to it because sales ops is so... Um, it's such a background function that has a lot of incremental improvements that all support it. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, so the first would be, number one is, are we reaching the target market that will um, be receptive to this message? You know, so awareness, number one. So uh, one of the first missions was, you know, we had some budding um, line of business that was applying our technology in healthcare and was bolting it on the Salesforce in order to surface any data exfiltration issues, any, uh, um, you know, anything that was going on inside of Salesforce that should be happening, especially for people who are leaving an organization with Salesforce with contract renewals and anything like that. We wanted to be able to identify and surface that information. And, and so uh, in order to reach target market, a, a big effort was uh, in looking at the data, looking at all of the segmentation work that had been done and kind of making sure that we were steering in the right direction. So peeling back, okay, hey, we look, if we did nothing at all, we know that banking insurance and finance are our number one customer, no advertising whatsoever. Uh, and so we, and here's the, here's the uh, perfect average selling price for that, for that group. So let's go target it. Let's go make lots of money there. So that's one effort. On another side, um, downstream, so on the customer success side, is you know we're we're having some attrition, we're having some some churn there. Not a lot, but enough to raise eyebrows in certain areas. So we're like, what do we need to do there? One of the things we found was the implementation timeline was very 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 long, um, and it's because we were doing a lot of projects inside of that timeline, but could be carved off to say, we've done this, we've done this, we've done this, and now we're on to this last segment. So for the customer, it feels like we're making a lot of progress towards the end. Uh, and retention became, uh, started to go up. You know, Lowering the effort for the customer was always number one priority for sales ops. How do we do that? How do we communicate to them? Uh, how do we make them feel like it's easy to do business with us? Makes total sense. I think we've picked this from your LinkedIn profile, but uh, and, and I think this is for the fair warning role, um, where you served as a primary data Salesforce data visualization expert, and then illustrated gaps between customer experience whilst driving support for recommended process improvements. Could you share a little bit more about that? What gaps did you find, if you could possibly share specific examples, and then what were the improvements that you drove from that? So I think the First one that comes to mind is, you know, visualizing average selling price uh, for lines of business. Um, you know, so you have, in 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 one sense, you could see okay, the average selling price going up and down over the years, about staying pretty much the same. 
But pipeline looked like it was dipping in that specific segment. Okay. Um, and I was kind of scratching our heads going, so the visualization, if you picture in your mind's eye, you know, you have, you know, three, three graphs, you know, going along and then all of a sudden pipeline dips, you know, towards the end and you're like, okay, well, if we're going to meet our, our targets, um, we've got to raise the ASP by, you know, 40 grand. Uh, with our current pipeline. We're talking to the same folks. We're doing the same things. What's changed? Um, one of the things that came out of that exercise was looking at those customers who had churned. Uh, I know this seems completely unrelated, but I'll tie it together. One of the things was, okay, so they're churning or we're, it's a closed loss of an opportunity. What are some of the reasons that were stated uh, for, that, for, that, um, for that lost customer? And if you looked at purely the reasons that were taken, you saw that price was number one or bad timing was number two. Um, but if you looked at the rep notes and you studied those, you began to find out that that wasn't the case. It was a misleading, it was just something the reps were choosing, right? Because it was there. But the actual reason was that some of these uh, customers were leaving because they were taking our managed privacy services offering internally. So yes, price, sure. Timing, okay, but it was really a migration of we're not doing we're not going to be using fair warning for this uh, effort. We're going to be doing this internally, and so that what that did is it helped shape the conversation during our forecast reviews to ask better questions and to and to elevate our value proposition and what are some of the pitfalls that you would experience if you did this on your own. So taking it from an ASP perspective all the way down the line to why is a customer churning or why is a customer uh, not closing back to studying the assumptions that were in the data to begin with to bring out a new insight was was kind of a key thing in getting that to solve. This is like, a, in my opinion, an absolutely beautiful uh, amalgamation of the different things that a Salesforce person is supposed to do, right? So we're supposed to be uh, first collect the data, then we have to dig into the data to understand it, and then we have to make a recommendation to improve it. And so we have a really interesting example, one of the best we've probably heard on this show for that. Wow. And so just to clarify my understanding of the final stage is that or, or the, the reason these companies were, were leaving is because they were taking, they were doing this in-house. And so then for the, as you were selling to people, were you then just kind of reminding them of the challenges of doing that in-house and, and playing up the value of the product so they'd be less likely to churn at a later date? Is that the... <laughs> Yeah, instead of becoming uh, a conversation of just an offering, it became kind of a, a recommendation of here are some of the examples of what we what kind of time we can save you, and here's the ramp time for somebody in, in, in doing it internally that probably doesn't have a dedicated role to this. It's probably part time to look at all these alerts, to look at all of these uh, messages coming from our system to say here's a potential candidate for review. You leverage our team has been doing it for years to bring you only those things that are important to look at. Don't spend money on doing it yourself. Uh, it's too time consuming. It's going to take you too long. And by the way, you may miss something along the way. Makes total sense. It's, it's, it's a great example. Now we, because we've actually moved on from, from fair warning, do you have plans to stick with the sales ops game going forward? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and it, it's, it's just something that, I just find um, it's just interesting to me. I guess it's because it's the, the outcomes are always greater than the sum of the parts, you know. Uh, 
and that's fun. And, and running teams, you know, your show uh, has taught me a lot about um, the variance in the role. Uh, and so I, I'm still hoping to be a contributor to that, you know, to help define the role even more. Uh, and so that's kind of why I'm still interested in it. It's because it's just, it's just fun to do. And do you think the same stage you mentioned before, like the 15 million, 80 million through to the 30 million, do you think that's your sweet spot or do you think you would go uh, early or later stage? Sweet spot. I think so. I, I don't know. I know that I feel like, you know, working for large organizations and, I, and I've worked for uh, in an implementation capacity, many, um, and it becomes very functional. Uh, the roles become very functional. It, it's almost like a reversion back to this agile, process-minded, scaling kind of mindset to more these vertical structures that exist to execute on a particular uh, you know, objective. And so I find less cross-functional uh, at, at the very, you know, at the Fortune 5000 and above, I would say, probably. Makes sense. So I guess if there is any uh, SaaS or B2B CEOs uh, at around that stage, Martin Levesque on LinkedIn. Um, right. My final question, Martin, is who in the world of sales ops would you most like to take for lunch? So I've given this a lot of thought. I have two, if that's okay. Of course. So the first is somebody I ran across on a podcast called The Neighborhood. Uh, I don't think it's active anymore. Um, but um, her name is Danielle Peritori. She's with Asana now. Uh, she's been with Glassdoors, which is where I ran into her and listened to her and followed her a little bit. And uh, before that, uh, Glassdoor, I'm, I'm sorry, before Glassdoor, it was LinkedIn. Nerd Wallet, I believe, was also on there. Um, I find a lot of good talent comes out of LinkedIn for some reason. It just seems like there's a constant stream of very, very good folks. Uh, you guys should be holding on to those people. But uh, yeah, Danielle Peritori is somebody I would love to talk to specifically about one subject, which is um, how does she handle uh, objections or pushback when she has identified something critical to success from the executive team? You know, say, like, this is critical. We need to do it. And there's a, a apprehensive for change. What are her techniques for getting around that? Love to hear that. Uh, the second person is Trish, I hope I said this correctly, Bertuzzi. Trish Bertuzzi is the CEO founder of The Bridge Group. Now, if anybody out there in sales ops uh, hopefully knows about The Bridge Group, or has at least heard about it, there are a number of incredibly important metrics that they produce that add validity to some of the initiatives that you want to push forward. You know, uh, give you a quick example, uh, you know, something like 60% of all executives read their messages or email on cell phones. Well, that translates directly to, I better have a subject line that's very, very, very short and to the point in my cadences and fill off an outreach if I'm going to be able to reach that guy or girl. Um, or, you know, the fact that it takes uh, so many months to ramp up uh, an account executive uh, based on the dollar amount uh, that they're selling. Again, another hugely important metric. All a wealth of information coming out of the team. I'd love to take her to lunch and find out what she thinks about the future of sales. Amazing. Two great recommendations that haven't been on our radar. So maybe we will uh, reach out. And if they do 
applies to us, Martin, we'll connect you and maybe you can have a virtual lunch or maybe even a real, in real life lunch one day. Um, now, I'm going to invite my wonderful co-host, Alex, onto the show, who I believe has some, some more detailed questions about the material we have already covered. Thanks, Tom. Um, yes, no, um, thanks, Martin. I've been, yeah, been really interesting listening to what you're saying and um, just a number of, I suppose, different areas that I, I wanted to, to dive in on a bit more. So it may be a bit higgledy-piggledy, so apologies if that's the case. But the thing that first grabbed my attention was um, the, the talk of consulting and, and then the different ways talked about, you know, running as a consulting department and particularly then and Tom sort of summarized as seeing sales ops as almost an internal consulting department to, to the general go-to-market and, and executive functions. And I just wondered if you, if you wanted to elaborate on that a bit more. Sure. Um, I, I've never heard it put that way, honestly. And I've, I, I actually love the idea. Um, so one of the things I can say about it is there's really, whenever I'm approaching an executive team um, about a particular initiative, uh, I, I follow three basic tenets. Uh, so one is I'll talk about, you know, there's a high degree of dependence on institutional knowledge to achieve an outcome. So that is ripe for standardization, uh, knowledge transfer, um, and, and this, you know, operational uh, application of systems. Um, the second is um, what can be standardized. So uh, you're going to hear when you go into a number of companies, all we're unique. You know, we do things differently here. Uh, it's only us. And you hear that enough times, and you start to be able to pick out what is an exception and what is a rule. Uh, and how you do that is through by analyzing frequency and impact. If it happens once a year, but the whole thing crashes, it's worth doing. If it happens 10 times a month, but it only affects one person, who cares? Uh, you know, so being able to speak to that uh, and, and being able to identify, number one, high dependence on institutional knowledge, whether something is an exception or a rule and how you can look at that across the process. And the third thing is, um, I would say bringing in um, both critics and champions of any particular initiative you have uh, to a point where you've come to a common ground about how you're going to approach it, and then use that as kind of your um, your ammunition to talk to the executive team. Uh, so I guess you know how is it a consultancy? It's a consultancy in the sense that you're preparing in the same way that you would to go to a board of directors to say we're going to do this thing. Uh, and, and here are all the questions you're going to ask me, and here's all the things I'm going to say to help address them. Uh, but those three things to me uh, have always helped land a nod uh, towards going and doing something. Thanks, I mean that's super interesting and helpful. Um, the one piece particularly interesting at the end was see, you said bringing in um, both champions and critics. Now, champions is obvious. Um, critics might be slightly less so. So um, just yeah. a bit of thought on that. Yeah, so um, one of the rules that I followed just in my early career was that um, if I didn't talk to the critic, I probably wasn't getting all perspectives. You know, It's just like when you talk to the executive, the CEO, and he gives you a vision about what they want. And then you go down to the manager and he kind of echoes with that, maybe has his own spin on it. And if you don't talk to the end user, you're not going to get the, you're not going to get the full breadth of what's actually going on, right? The feet of the street, the work that's happening, how does that marry up to the vision and all that stuff? So um, for the critic, 
they're usually, it's one of, it, it can be one of a few scenarios, but I'll give you a couple examples. One is a critic because something is affecting them specifically. Um, it could be a, a, a role that is very high effort and little reward. Uh, it could be that um, they're critical of uh, the actual mission of the department. You can get a ton of information out of a critic versus a champion. A champion may be, you know, they just had their ego strokes for five years and they think they're the champion. They may not be, I don't know. But um, the, the important thing is, is if, if you can identify a critic versus a complainer, that's probably a, an important distinction. Um, but uh, I've, bringing those two together in the same room and having them hash out uh, something is also part of the uh, secret sauce, right? Because who better expert than the person who's really good at something and the really the person who's struggling with something to come up with a way that is going to be forward thinking. <laughs> There's no better way to do it. So, and the only thing that you add to that is maybe a little uh, guidance and collaboration and orchestration of the conversation and helping them frame up what we're actually trying to achieve. Oh, brilliant. Thanks. Yeah, because I mean, I, I know you often talk on the show about, about sales being like the customer. And so I wanted to keep them, them happy. And I think that really feeds into that. The other thing I really like is, again, you know, executives are being bombarded all the time with, we should change this, we should change that, we should do this. And it's much, probably much more common to say, Here, here's the great reasons why. And not, not, you know, let me gloss over the, some of the negatives because I, I want you to do what I, I think is a good idea. And so that sort of honest, here we go, I've collated it all for you. Here's both sides, here's some perspectives. Um, right. You know, that, that confidence in your own ideas that they stand up to challenge and they stand up to the harshest, you know, most brutal critique is, you know, I think a really good, good strength and a, and a way to make, you know, the lives of people above you easier as well, which is you know, ultimately what someone who reports in should be doing. They say if you wanted to get anything done, build a groundswell of support before you take it anywhere. You know, you don't start at the top and suggest what you're going to do and then go build the support. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, thank you. Um, so a couple of other things that you just touched on that particularly interesting, um, a bit around the sort of the process and the, and the data visualization side. Um, and I suppose in, in my, my experience, often people tend to maybe fall slightly more down one side or the other. You know, they, mm -hmm. they really like using data and going and solving problems or they quite like you know, putting, building processes. So just wondered if you could speak to sort of that harmonization of that and, and how you've approached, you know, keeping both of those pieces together and, and, and supporting each other in your career. Sure. Um, I will say that I lean heavily on uh, needs analysis, functional requirements gathering, um, root cause analysis, I'll even say, process building, process engineering. That's kind of my, my thought process, right? Uh, uh, down this, going down this path of sales ops has really taught me a ton about data and data visualization. You know, number one, uh, yeah, I think it was Danielle, in fact, who said that data lies, right? Data can be counter, it, it, can, it could be, it can contradict itself. It's so true. Um, so the data visualization part is an exceptionally important aspect of adding credibility to your uh, theories about process reengineering. Um, so they must work hand in hand. One of the tools that I've found to be incredibly valuable, uh, you know, specifically it's a data visualization tool that's hooked into Salesforce. Um, and it gives you all this incredibly difficult to get historical data. And so I'll, I'll give you one example, um, sales stage duration. It's kind of hard to get to uh, from a historical standpoint. Uh, 
for closed opportunities. But this tool is able to extract that data in a very seamless way and display it in a way that gives you a picture of here's where you're winning and how long it takes to get there. And here are what some of the losses look like. Um, and it gives you insight into what levers to play with. So for us, uh, at Fair Warning, it gave us insight into saying, okay, well, we're hanging out in the proposing stage. We're there for 180 days. Why is that? It could be because you're selling into healthcare with extremely long sales tail, or it could be that uh, you're just rushing the COVID, right? So how are we going to change the process so that we reduce that, uh, that bubble in the middle? And uh, what we learned was we were rushing to quoting and we weren't doing a, a, a better job of digging into uh, the reason why a particular company had looked outside their organization in the first place to solve a problem. And so if, we, if they just met Bant and click, boom, they went to the pipeline. Uh, so great, makes your pipeline great, but it also makes you hang out in the proposing stage and makes, your, it makes everything kind of seem more bloated than it does. So how did it impact our actual conversations? Was we spent more time in understanding, did we really know the needs of the client and were we a good fit? So again, the data and the process going flowing through to the forecast reviews, flowing through to the questions we asked, it's, it's all kind of interrelated. Um, and so we were process-wise, we ended up spending more time on the SDRs asking more pointed questions, more discovery type questions. And on the proposing side, spending more time making that kind of a final contract versus just a, a, a statement of needs and here's a price. It's all been very interesting. So really appreciate your insight, Martin. Um, and I think that's, that's all the questions I have for now. So thank you. Thanks, Alex. Thank you, Alex, for coming on uh, and asking those more detailed questions. The final thing we have to say is, Martin, I want to thank you for joining and sharing so honestly and openly. As I said, the example you gave, I think, is like sales ops at its best. And I hope that, I, in fact, I'm sure the audience um, got a lot of value specifically from that. Uh, example and from your discussion as a whole. So Martin, thank you for coming on. And thank you for having me. It's been great. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sales Ops Demystified podcast. If you are listening on a podcast listening application, then please subscribe, rate and review. And if you have any questions about the show, if you know a guest or if you have any questions about sales operations, just hit me up at tomhunt at ebster.com. That's tomhunt at ebster.com.